0: Welcome to China in Context. I'm Duncan Bartlett. As tensions between Washington and Beijing mount in many areas military, economic, diplomatic, as well as cultural it's become common to hear talk of a new Cold War, casting a chill over international relations. President Joe Biden has characterized the confrontation with China as a battle between autocracy and democracy. Opinion polls suggest that a majority of Americans take a largely dim view of China. However, those generalizations overlook an important political point. Within the United States, there are a significant number of people who have multifaceted opinions about China, acknowledging the good and the bad, the yin and the yang. Indeed, many Americans say that they're uncomfortable with a barrage of negative reporting and the shrill tone of the politicians. Our guest on the podcast today advocates a more cooperative approach between the United States and China. He's Michael Swain, Director of the East Asia Program at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft in Washington. Michael, welcome to China in Context.
1: Thank you, Duncan. Pleasure to be here.
0: I'd like to start by asking you to outline briefly your organization's position. You say that competition with China should not prevent the United States from working together with the Chinese where necessary, especially on global existential threats like climate change. What's your message?
1: The first is that the US and China are currently locked in a largely negative downward spiral in which each side is worst casing the motives and intentions of the other, is ignoring how they themselves might be contributing to this spiral, and is, I guess, one-sidedly stressing deterrence over reassurance in many policy spheres, such as regarding Taiwan, which could lead to conflict. Um, Second, the truly existential or near existential threat facing the U.S., in our view, is not China, but domestic extremism, climate change, and global financial disorder. And then third, we argue that the U.S. needs to really adopt Uh, much clearer policies with specific goals and an overall strategy that's driven by some kind of vision of what kind of overall Sino-US relationship is desired long-term. All of this, we argue, requires a much higher stress on diplomacy, moderation, and balance over militaristic and ideological frames for the relationship with China. Competition itself is not really a policy, much less a strategy. Now, how do you bound it? What should be the limits placed on tech and economic decoupling, for example? These labels that people are using, democracy versus authoritarianism, et cetera, really are not good ways to try to get at this much more complex relationship.
0: Right. And you used a label of your own there. You said the word militaristic. So can I clarify, are you advocating a non-militaristic and humanitarian foreign policy? Uh, does that mean that the Quincy Institute is basically a left-wing lobby group?
1: (laughs) No, I don't think, I wouldn't characterize this as a left-wing lobby group. Uh, Definitely not. Um, We certainly have goals that are other than what you would call militaristic. Uh, So yes, we do oppose the idea that military force should be used as a sort of first option for the United States or or near first option. Um, Our goals, as I said before, are restraint, diplomacy and the search for positive sum solutions to common problems. And and these views, by the way, are shared by individuals and organizations on both the left and the right of the political spectrum.
0: So I'm interested to know the response to your message within Washington. My understanding is at the moment, there's a lot of hawkish rhetoric on China coming from both sides, the Republicans and the Democrats. I should think you're a bit of a lone voice in the wilderness, aren't you? Well, I wouldn't say we're a lone voice in the wilderness.
1: As a, as a think tank, as a relatively new think tank, we're joined in many of our views by, uh, the, for example, the Libertarian Cato Institute in Washington, as well as a lot of uh, non-governmental organizations of various types, both left and right, that focus on avoiding war, avoiding over-involvement, avoiding U.S. Uh, nation-building and interventions, etc., unless absolutely necessary and vital to US national interest. And our viewpoints also supported either in part or in whole by many China analysts, uh, former US government officials uh, to do with Asia or China, and even some members of Congress.
0: Well, I first came across your views in a recent edition of The Economist, for which I'm doing some work at the moment. And it really highlighted the broad spectrum of political opinion within the United States. Right, right. But, but what about the press and public opinion? I can imagine that you struggle to get your voice across, don't you?
1: We're a new organization, so you, you don't have the sort of cachet and, and you know strong uh, record that you have, say, at the Council on Foreign Relations or the Brookings Institution, or the place where I was before, the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace or CSIS, so you know, reporters often will go to people that they know and people they're familiar with. They certainly, a lot of them know me on the Asia front, and so I often will um, speak to reporters um, who've known me for some time. But as an organization, uh, we're really working hard to raise our profile in Washington. And you know, most press are interested in getting uh, different views, so they don't want to just simply reinforce the kind of general mindset. Of, of Washington, what some people call the blob viewpoint in Washington. And we are certainly a good example of a think tank that does not subscribe to that kind of um, approach. So I think we're getting increasing amounts of attention from, from the press. Now, how to influence public opinion, is uh, other than through the press, is, is another question. And that is difficult for every think tank. They always have problems in getting out to the public. And really being able to convey their views, the views of of individual analysts or the organization to members of the public outside of Washington. You know, so there you have a competition to go on national programs on television or radio or podcasts like this. And we're we have a very active communications department at Quincy that is very actively engaged in, in doing that.
0: Well, I think it's also true that students at many universities want to hear a range of opinions too, which is why I'm pleased that you're you're taking part in our podcast. Thanks. Um, I want to take a, a tricky subject, and that's China's human rights record. I mean, this is raised at every single meeting about China that I attend these days, and it's something that we often discuss here at SOAS at the University of London. The people who take a hawkish line on China say that those who favor a more non-interventionist stance, they're ignoring China's repression, or they're even acting as agents, proxy agents of an authoritarian regime. What's your view on that?
1: Well, my view is that human rights certainly are an important component of Western diplomacy, and they need to be defended, especially when they are egregiously undermined and threatened, uh, as they are in many places around the world, including China. But in general, policies in this area, I think, uh, should not be mixed with geopolitical or geostrategic objectives. And they need to be consistent, applied across the board, including toward US allies and partners. They need to be applied with as many countries as possible as a coalition. And they need to be designed to affect real change and not done just for cosmetic or what you call feel good reasons alone. And perhaps most importantly, I think they need to be upheld and reflected in U.S. domestic policies and U.S. domestic behavior in recent years. Um, There's been too much hypocrisy in U.S. human rights uh, policy in a variety of areas regarding racism and policing and elsewhere, torture, extrajudicial or non-transparent renditions during the war on terror, et cetera. I mean, we're all familiar with these things. The United States needs to really up its home game in order to really play a more, I think a more, a
0: stronger, more influential role internationally in upholding human rights. It's notable to me that in many areas of the foreign policy arena, uh, the tone is set by the United States. And that's true of China too. Generally, Washington expects its allies to follow its lead. So the United Kingdom and Australia they fell into line with a ban on Huawei, for example, and that was really down to pressure from the US. So in that sense, I I, I feel that the Americans are not really leaving a lot of room for other countries to work out their own rules of engagement
1: with China. Well, as I suggested before, uh, there's a lot of kind of bumper sticker slogans that are being pushed by the United States that I think really are not terribly helpful. They are in general, I mean, things like a free and open Indo-Pacific, the rules-based international order that you know Secretary of State Blinken and others repeat you know, over and over again. But I think in many cases, these, these slogans really are sort of grossly simpl- simplistic. Uh, they distort the underlying reality. They make for good politics perhaps in some respects, but they're not good geopolitics. In most cases, I think they're being used to build closer kind of anti-China coalitions and exclusive networks. Um, Take the free and open Indo-Pacific concept, for example, and the rules-based order. These gloss over the actual complexity of the global order and the obvious need to reach mutual accommodation and shared objectives, including with China, um, which has an enormous presence and influence among a large number of nations, both positive and negative, as does the US. Um, These slogans tend to boil down the global order into a single entity centered on democracy, free trade, and international law. But in fact, there is no single global order. There are many international regimes and agreements in many areas, many of them supported to varying degrees by China and the West. And there are many types of economic systems with varying levels of state involvement. Yes, there are common laws and conventions that are agreed upon by many countries, and they need to be upheld, but there's also a lot of variation among nations in how they understand those common laws and conventions and what they think is required in order to observe them. There's cheating on the part of all countries, the U.S. included. And the U.S. needs to work with other countries, including China, to clarify interpretations of international law and norms to ensure greater compliance and to adapt them where necessary. So I think a lot of these kinds of labels really need to be pierced in some ways and replaced with the much more complex situation, which, as I said, is, I think, really what the reality is for, for
0: the United States and China. So we'll be drawing the podcast to a close fairly shortly, Michael. But before we do, could you say a particular recommendation that you have on how to reduce the risk of conflict between China and the United States?
1: Sure. I mean, I'd say that first and foremost, the two sides need to stop the zero-sum rhetoric and the demonization that is going on. Um, this is really self-destructive. It closes off moderate options. It it, it increases the tendency to have zero-sum viewpoints, It alarms friends and allies, et cetera. Uh, I think that the United States also needs to really develop much more concretely what its goals are towards China, what is the vision that it has of US-China relations longer term? Uh, What's negotiable, what's not negotiable, and how best to achieve these goals? It it hasn't really done that as far as I can tell. It's done a China policy review, it says, but we've seen no sign of it. Um, So that is really, I think, a very necessary thing to do. Um, And it needs to really step up its engagement in Asia, particularly economically, uh, so that it can become a more influential uh, power there, but in in a way that can encourage more cooperative, positive-sum uh, outcomes in the region.
0: Michael, thank you for drawing our attention to a way of thinking about China which we don't hear articulated very often, especially from the American side. That was Michael Swain, director of the East Asia Program at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft, a think tank in Washington. This podcast is produced by the SOAS China Institute part of the University of London and there are details of our courses and events on our web pages soas.ac.uk. For now that's all from us here on the China in Context podcast team.